0: I greet you in the name of the risen Christ and thank you for the gifts of worship, both those who have led and those who have participated. Thank you for making the presence of Christ obvious. He was here before we arrived. We just got to join him and enjoy his grace and mercy in worship, and we are grateful for that. Do you realize how unusual it is that we might actually be gathered together in worship, As I've traveled from time to time to other seminaries, it's not common to have a chapel service with very many folks gathered in that space. It's as if the prophecies that you used to hear in church are true. If you want to lose your faith, come to a seminary. (laughs) But there is a heart here and in many other places of faithfulness around the world where followers of Jesus gather together. And they join in this movement, which is beyond all possibilities. Because this is the pattern. What typically happens is, when the founder dies, the movement dies. And certainly for the Jews, as they were gathered together post-crucifixion, they had every reason to imagine that pattern would be repeated. A week earlier, they'd had that victorious entry into Jerusalem, got all excited about it, and then they had that ominous conversation in the upper room. Then they witnessed the horrendous beatings and that ultimate crucifixion of their Messiah. It's as if the one commentator on the book of Deuteronomy, it's as if that curse of futility was showing up again. That curse when the Jews had disobeyed God and God's hand of blessing had been lifted off in those years upon years, seasons upon seasons of already but not yet, waiting for God's promise to finally return, but not yet seeing it show up. And here they are in lockdown mode, huddled in their room, terrified. There have been other kinds of deliverers, there have been other kinds of folks trying to defeat the Roman captivity. I mean, Acts 5 talks about Thutis and, and also about Judas, the, the Galilean. The, these folks had tried to have their own little uprising, their own little delivery. And here were the disciples, locked safely away, they hoped. Now, I imagine that John is in that room taking attendance. I, I kind of see him saying, okay, let's see who's here. We, we've got, uh, we've got, got Matthew, okay, and there's Andrew, and, and there's Peter. Tom, Thomas, hey, Thomas, where'd you go, Thomas. All right, look, is he AWOL? Is he absent without leave? Is is this an excused absence? And he goes on down the list of attendants. And I imagine that probably Mary Magdalene is there. I imagine the other women are there. And as they are gathered in that room, there is a buzz. There is a kind of furor that's building up there because they've been hearing these stories all day. Certainly when Mary Magdalene came back and told the disciples, when the other women came back and told the disciples, there was this kind of churn happening inside of them. Certainly when Peter came back and told the story, and now Cleopas and his buddy on the Emmaus Road, when they went into Jesus, these testimonies keep coming back and they're now bottled up in this little room. You can imagine the emotion and the faith that's churning back and forth. You can imagine the kinds of interrogations that are going on as they are trying to figure out whether these stories are true or not. You can imagine the men looking at the woman and saying, look, we, we know you're sincere. We know you've been faithful. They probably looked at Mary Magdalene and said, look, if I'd had seven demons cast out of me, I'd want to see Jesus too. I absolutely understand this. But, you know, he died. And the tomb might be empty. We're getting confirming kinds of testimonies, but, but we're not quite sure what to make of all this. And imagine if they looked at Peter, and Peter, if he even said much at all to them, as he told his story of rec- recognizing Jesus, I'm wondering if they said, Peter, you know, your credibility a bit weak right now. Remember those three conversations you had between Thursday and Friday? And I suspect when the Emmaus disciples came back, I I suspect that there's still a debate going on amongst the others in the room. All right, we, we understand that he walked with you, you didn't recognize him. We understand you actually had a meal together, but how do you know it wasn't a ghost? And they, like us, find ourselves on occasions trying to figure it all out. Just trying to know what's real and what's believable. Now, into this mix, as we have gone from from believing the unbelievable, we now move into this segment of the story of seeing the undeniable. Into this mix comes Jesus. Into this mix of emotions and stages of belief comes the risen Christ. And I don't know about you, but if I were Jesus coming into that room, my first words would not be, peace be to you. My first words would be very clear, you bunch of jerks. What do you think you've been doing? All these three years we were together, all these three years we talked about it, we had these serious conversations, all these miracles, all these things going on, and you, you abandoned me? What are you thinking? But Jesus' first words have zero qualifiers. There's no hedging. It's very simple. Peace be to you. And he presents his credentials the wounded hands, the pierced side. And then Jesus repeats himself. Again, he says, peace be to you. But now he's turning the corner. This is a different kind of peace. It isn't simply, okay, settle down, calm down, put the shame away. It's a different kind of peace because this peace comes with a commissioning. As the Father sent me, I'm sending you. And he breathes on them and says, receive the Holy Spirit. Now, we're not quite sure how we connect this version of the Spirit being poured out on the disciples with Pentecost. There's a lot of ways you know in Scripture about that. But I wonder if if Luke 24 might give us an indication. In Luke 24, the Gospel writer says, And the Lord opened their minds to understand the Scriptures. And I wonder if we're so time-bound we get confused by the obvious. That God doesn't wait on days and weeks. God's spirit is faithful at the moment. Now what's fascinating is we get this commissioning of the disciples that resonates with the story we know of Peter. I'm going to send you out, and I'm going to give you the authority as God's agents to say, look, your sins are forgiven, and yours aren't. And while there are many times as a pastor when I would care to use that power and authority... While there are many occasions, what I would love to have said to some of the more rancorous in my congregation, let's talk a little bit. Have you any idea what kind of authority I really have? (laughs) Have you read the Gospels? Do you know what keys mean? That's not the Gospel. The Gospel is God's already done what God is going to do. And we get to declare it. And the question becomes, not simply, how do we get to tie folks down or let them loose? The question becomes is, how will we know God well enough through Christ Jesus? We actually have a clue. How do we, by the faithfulness of the Spirit in us, speak the truth? Now, you know what happened? In that interim between the Resurrection Sunday and the following Sunday, the rumors were all over the place. I mean, the conversations were lively. They were animated. And there were all kinds of discussions going on, especially with Thomas. Look, Thomas, I don't know what your problem was. I don't know if you just overslept or what the deal was. But Thomas, we saw Jesus. And Thomas, in his own style and personality, didn't get it. Now, I think it's fair to say that Thomas maybe should have gotten it. I think it's fair to say that anybody that spent three years with Jesus should have gotten it. But to be fair, the 11 in the room didn't get it either. So you know the story. After a week of those five appearances ruminating all over the place, and all in the interim hearing Thomas say, unless I can touch him myself, in almost dramatic language, unless I can thrust my finger in those nail holes and thrust my head into to that spear side, I am not going to believe. In a dramatic fashion, Jesus shows up again. And we are faced with the irrefutable. As Thomas is being singled out, Oh, during that week, Thomas, if only you had caught on, if only you'd been there, if only you believe our testimony, Thomas, come on, Thomas, what will it take? Now, Jesus enters that locked room again. And I don't know about you, but I would be tempted if I were Thomas. After a week's worth of denial, I'd be tempted to hide behind somebody. I would not put myself front and center, eyeball to eyeball, with the risen Christ. I'd be a bit reluctant to do so. But it's as if Jesus came to do business, not only with Thomas, but to turn the corner in the whole narrative for the rest of us as well. Yes, I know, Greek scholars, there's a chiasm going on here in in John chapter 20. I understand this kind of bookending, that that mirroring that that the, the author is doing. But in this particular moment, as Thomas and Jesus do business together, As this link between believing and forgiveness takes on flesh, as this crisis of faith happens for Thomas, the language, if it's done in literal fashion, as the commentators say, is this stop unbelieving and get on with becoming believing. Stop unbelieving and get on with becoming believing. Get to that point where you indeed see enough evidence, whether by the testimony or in the flesh, that you, like Thomas, can say, my Lord and my God. Isn't it fascinating the difference between Peter's confession and Thomas's confession? I'm fairly convinced that for some people, hearing the gospel in the midst of a cacophony of idols and distractions is possible. Peter did it with all those idols around him. But I suspect for some personalities and some circumstances, it takes a closed door and eyeball to eyeball. It takes a little bit more of a revelation person to person. And for Thomas, in this crowd of his close companions, that's exactly what happens. There is that deep faith, that deep confidence, that deep confession that he can indeed trust and believe. And Jesus says to him, All right, Thomas, this may be one of the last times you get this lesson. In fact, you all are about to be sent out. And if your testimony isn't enough, especially the next generations following you, we're all in trouble. But the gift of the Holy Spirit, then and at Pentecost made those testimonies believable. And the miracles and the power that God showed through those disciples, through that first generation, changed everything. Now, I was raised in a fairly normal kind of church, normal in the sense that I was raised in a very traditional kind of church, normal in the sense that we knew that, you know, miracles were supposed to happen somewhere back in the Old Testament and New Testament times, but we hadn't seen one lately. In my upbringing, the uh, folks who knew power and wonders were folks that were down on the edge of town, uh, were a little bit outside of the norm, and we weren't quite sure what to do with them. So during my my years of growing up and my years of even college and seminary, I had not really seen a church empowered, and not many folks. But we heard missionary stories. People came through and told about how God's faithfulness had helped to give them stamina and strength on mission field and. And, but even then, they were calm stories. They weren't power encounters. They were calm and, and soft kinds of stories. But as I hung out in Wilmore, Kentucky for a while, <laughs> other kinds of stories started showing up. And I started meeting other kinds of folks for whom it wasn't just simply the authenticity of their testimony. There was more than authenticity. There was an anointing and a kind of God's presence and God's power that I just would always drop my my mouth open and say, how is that possible? I mean, I prayed for folks before, and they got better, and that was a good thing, but, you know. This was brought back to me again as we were on a doctor ministry trip about uh, 2011, 2010. We had been going to Korea on a regular basis and we opted for that first year to um, do a contrasting trip, to go first to, to, uh, to Beijing and then on over to Seoul. Our uh, guide for, for that trip for those few days in China was one of our alums, he, he was a seasoned missionary. Uh, one who actually believes that God does do power and wonders and show up and more than just our words. And as he was taking us from place to place, we had a lunch appointment uh, just off of Tiananmen Square. We were in a locked room, or at least guarded room, because a special guest was coming into that room. And being so close to Tiananmen, we knew the guest would be, very, um, would be risking his safety to be there so close to the center of power. As uh, we came into the room, a few minutes later came in this man, I I think he was in his 90s, and his wife. Uh, We were told that the gentleman was uh, old enough that some of the dimensions started to set in a little bit and that his health was not great, but his wife would help to interpret. And so he was introduced to us as Moses Shia. Now, we didn't know Moses Shia from anybody because we'd not done our homework but if you've heard that name, you know that he was one of the five or six primary leaders of the Christian church in China, especially in the 20th century, mid-20th century. And here he was telling us stories of his imprisonment because he would not become part of the three-self movement back in the 50s. And because of that, he was thrown into prison. He would tell stories of wanting to kill himself and get it over with because the torture was so horrendous. He would tell stories of... The, uh, the handcuffs that he had, the chains that he had, and how the skin would grow over it and then, just for torture's sake, the guards would rip that skin off. For over 20 years, this was his life. Being faithful to the call, living out his life to the best of his ability in prison. Honoring Christ with his life. When he was finally released in the 80s, he uh, went into ministry and, and would be arrested from time to time. And here he was in his latter days telling the story of God's faithfulness. Sometimes in powerful healings. Sometimes in long suffering. Always pointing to the risen Christ. This Jesus who has come back from the dead. I don't know what it is for you but I just need reminders from time to time that my tame faith falls short of what God has in mind. That sometimes I try to outsmart God and outfigure God rather than trust that God is much more than we can figure out. That there are those occasions when the testimonies I need are people who have risked much more than I have and have come out with a testimony that has power and anointing. So as you imagine that locked room, as you imagine those disciples, let me suggest what they might be saying to us. Imagine Mary Magdalene in that room, still not believed on that resurrection night. The one who just that morning seen Jesus, even though it took a little while, thinking it was the gardener, wondering where he had gone. And it wasn't until Jesus called her name that she understood I wonder if there might be any of us here who have done all the, the searching around a particular area of our life and faith, and we just need to hear Jesus call our name. No more searching, no more doubting, no more questioning. Just hearing the sweet voice of Jesus calling our name. I wonder if some of us might be more like um, folks like the disciples. Hold up somewhere, terrified of the dire consequences of our faith. Maybe you're like me when I was in seminary where I never did quite catch on to this power thing, this miracle thing. So hold up, so locked up inside, huddled with the rest of the fearful community, reluctant to believe the reports that God could break us out. I wonder if some of us might be like Peter. And I wonder if you might be hearing Peter say to us, no, no, no. No matter how many times you've denied me, no matter how many times you have failed, no matter how much shame and pain and guilt, Jesus comes. Jesus invites. And it might take enacting it again through that little fishing expedition that follows in John 21. But the commission is the same. Lay it down. Follow me. And I wonder if there might be some of us like Thomas until the evidence piles up high enough, until there is that experience of the non negotiable reality that Jesus really is alive. I wonder if some of us just need to once again look at the evidence and see the reality of this risen Christ. I wonder if sometimes we might, unlike Thomas, actually want to put our hands in his hand and touch that side and to know this is the one. When I was uh, raised in a a Christian family, I had begun to hear the stories as I was older uh, of my dad. My dad was a good father. He cared for us well. By the time I'd come along, I was the fourth of five children. Uh, He had gone to church regularly pretty much with us when he wasn't working. Um, He um, didn't look too engaged while he was there, but he was there. And somewhere in my teenage years, I heard the story that when uh, they had first gotten married, dad would drive mom and the young kids to uh, church in a drunken stupor and just uh, wait out in the car until uh, it was over with and take them back home again. And I'd heard other kinds of stories the order I got that um, I won't tell from this pulpit. But as I got those stories into my own sense of personal history, I just found myself saying, man, I don't know that my dad's a Christian. While I was in college and seminary here in Wilmore, I uh, was being mentored by a pastor back in Lancaster, and I'd come home for one of the, the, the holiday breaks, and when I saw my pastor, I noticed that my dad had... Started ushering in worship services and had uh, become a trustee. So I said to the pastor, why are you letting my dad do that? Why are you letting my dad do those kinds of things in church? He doesn't love Jesus. As far as I can tell, he's not a Christian. My pastor said, you know, you must not have heard the story. About two months ago, your dad came to me and said, I think I'm ready. And from that moment on, my dad was different. There was something about him that was peaceful and engaged. He started acting differently, and his decisions changed, and his priorities shifted. And at 87, when he died, there was a sense of peace in him that said, you know, if my heart stops, my heart stops. I'm ready. This resurrection is not just for living. It's also for dying and everything in between. And we, like Thomas, can say, my Lord and my God. So in these moments, as we close this time of worship, what's the next step for you? Whose voice is in your ears? And how does the Lord Christ, the risen one, want to become all the more real to you and to me on this day in this season of Easter? Let's pray together. Lord God some of us might indeed might be used by you in powerful ways like Moses Shia where we will have a primary role in the church of Christ impacting a nation and beyond. Some of us will be quieter not in the spotlight but just trying to faithfully live out your grace and mercy in our lives so that when we do see you face to face we can continue the witness of how good our God is. In this congregation, Lord Jesus, in any seminary, we just need those reminders that your word is true and your spirit is present and you want to remove those doubts and enforce and strengthen our faith. Do that in us today. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear. Make us ready to say yes as your witnesses to your people. In Jesus' name, and amen.